Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 271. 271. I'm Douglas Wilson, and I'm very glad you decided to join us. So, um, what I want to talk about in this opening segment this time is full preterism. And I don't want to, obviously, it's an enormous subject, and I don't want to um, get into all the, uh, <laughs> all the nooks and crannies of the subject. I would just like to uh, step into the very, the very shallow end of the topic and talk about the authority of the creeds, uh, the, uh, the ecumenical creeds when it comes to a question uh, like this. Full preterism is the view that all of the prophecies of Scripture find their fulfillment in the destruction of the temple uh, in 70 AD, or at least by that time, such that there is no future resurrection of the dead there is no future final coming of Christ. Uh, everything continues on pretty much the way it uh, has from the beginning, and there we are. So uh, th- that's the that's it in a nutshell. There are there are other aspects of it, of course, but what it boils down to is the is the conviction or belief that all the prophecies that are routinely applied to the end of the world by Orthodox Christians actually find their fulfillment in the first century. Now, this is called uh, full preterism or hyperpreterism. And uh, for many of us, myself included, who are what are called partial preterists, meaning that many of the, we believe that many of the passages that our dispensational brothers, for example, would apply to the end of the world, we believe that, that those passages do apply to the destruction of the the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the end of the Judaic aeon and so on. It's simply that partial preterists don't go whole hog and don't say that this applies to all of them. So partial preterists are orthodox in this. They affirm the future resurrection of the dead. They they affirm a future personal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history to judge the living and the dead and so on. So that's full preterism, partial preterism. Now, when this subject comes up, one of the things that happens is that somebody on my side of the aisle will say, and say correctly, that uh, this is rejected, this, this is a position, full preterism is a position that is rejected by the Christian church at large. Uh, and, and by this, we can say that if, if we look at the Apostles' Creed, if we look at the Nicene Creed, the early, the early statements of the church, there's only one eschatological thing that has found universal agreement uh, among all uh, Christians, and that is that hyperpreterism or full preterism is wrong. The Apostles' Creed uh, confesses that Jesus Christ is going to return to judge the quick and the dead. To judge the living and the dead. Uh, that confession in the Apostles' Creed is simply saying that uh, full preterism 
is in error. Now, the thing I wanted to talk about in this is the role of creeds and confessions, because it is very easy and predictable for the advocates of full preterism to say, well, uh, let's not go with the creeds and the confessions. Let's go with scripture. They, let's go with a high sola scriptura approach where we will, we will base what we accept and what we reject on the basis of scripture alone. Well, this is, and we don't want to have anything to do with creeds and confessions. Now, this is, I, this is a place where I'm not trying to be too tricksy by half. Uh, but I, I do need to point something out about this. The, uh, the table of contents of the New Testament is not the Word of God. The table of contents that you find in the beginning of your uh, New Testament that outlines the 27 books of the New Testament that defines which ones they are is a creed. It is the Word of the Church. Now, to say something is not, ins- and I don't believe the table of contents is inspired. At the same time, I believe it to be true. So, I, I also believe the Apostles' Creed to be uninspired, not inspired by the Spirit of God, but nevertheless true. So, I believe that a fallible authority, the church, can give us an infallible testimony because if something's true, then it's infallible. So I can I'm a fallible authority. I trust I trust all you listeners know. I'm a fallible authority and I can say something infallible. Uh, I can say two oranges added to two oranges will always get you four oranges. Now that's a that's an infallible statement coming from a fallible source. I didn't have divine protection or inspiration that enabled me to make that infallible statement, but it's infallible nonetheless. Right? Now The table of contents of the New Testament is the word of the church. It's a creed. Okay, it's a creed. Now, this does not put the church in authority over the Bible. It doesn't put the church in authority over the Bible. To use Martin Luther's example, when when, uh, John the Baptist testified, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this didn't put John the Baptist in a senior position to Christ. He was simply testifying to Christ. He was not um, he was not deciding who would be the Christ, right? So the full preterist, in order to uh, go to scripture alone without reference to any creed, without reference to the authority of the church, has to rest on the authority of the church to define where he goes. right so in in other words, you can't just go off in the woods. Uh, and commune with God by means of just me and my Bible. It's got to. It, this is something that has to be done in the context of the church. Now we we reject. I certainly reject the Roman Catholic claims for the authority of the church. I don't believe that the the church tradition or the church magisterium is equal to Scripture. But I do say that it it is um, very closely tied up with Scripture. And if you reject creeds entirely, you don't have scripture. That's that's the point. If you reject uh, if you reject creeds top to bottom, then you don't have any basis for rejecting the other creeds. There'll be more to say in this, no doubt. And at some point, I bet I will. Always will be God. Continuing on with episode two seventy one, we are we've come to our our very popular hamartiology segment segment 
So we continue our studies in this exciting new major of homartiology, but we undertake it with the noblest of motives, of course. Today's word is epithumeo, epithumeo. Lust, it means lust, or covet, or lust after. Now, we're going to be on this topic, actually, for about a month, because scriptures have a lot to say about lust and coveting. Today is the verb for lusting, and we're going to break up the noun over the three weeks after that. So we're going to be on the topic of lusting for a while yet. Today, the verb, and then three weeks after the noun. Now, for both the, uh, for both the verb and the noun, the word can refer to a strong desire that is ethically righteous, right? It, it can mean just simply uh, intense desire. Uh, and English used to have more of that with the word lust. So, and we still see it in words like wanderlust or, or lust for life. Um, the person who has a real lust for life isn't uh, necessarily wicked, right? The same thing is true in Greek. So, in Matthew 13, 17, it says this, For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Now, there, there's, your verb, the, there's your verb there, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things. So, these righteous men, these prophets, had an intense desire to see what the disciples were seeing. And, of course, that's not a corrupt desire. So, the, the word epithemeo simply means a, an intense desire. But, however, comma, this is a fallen world, and strong desires always have a tendency to veer off the road. Paul once told the elders at, at Ephesus that he had not sinned against them in this way. In Acts 20, verse 33, it says, I have coveted, there's our verb, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. So, Paul, in his ministry there at Ephesus, didn't use that opportunity to uh, feather his own nest. I, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. When he describes the ethical struggle in Romans 7, the word rendered as covet is our word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now, the word lust there we're going to get to uh, in weeks to come, but the word uh, epithemeo that we're talking about here is in the thou shalt not covet, Romans 7, 7. And later in Romans 13, this, this word is used with regard to the 10th commandment, uh, just as it was in Romans 7. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, there it is, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Romans 13, 9. And then in other places, the word is translated as lust. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. All right, so this this uh, is, has reference to the Jews in the wilderness who veered off uh, into sin. Uh, we Christians ought not to lust after evil things the way they did. In James 4.2, it says, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. So here's the problem. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have. Then in Matthew 5.28, it says famously, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So there's one place where the word is used to describe the ethical struggle in both directions, which is actually pretty interesting. In Galatians 5.17, it says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, 
and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, it only uses the verb uh, once, the, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, but then the verb is implied in the, in the next phrase, and the spirit, parentheses, lusteth against the flesh. In other words, there's an intense desire of hostility of the one to the other, flesh against the spirit and spirit against the flesh. God don't never change He's so then, my book review for this uh, uh, episode, episode 271, as I've already told you, is The Sins of G.K. Chesterton by a gent named Ingrams. The Sins of G.K. Chesterton. Now, if you're a big Chesterton fan, as I most certainly am, I've, I read my first Chesterton book when I was going through my undergraduate work uh, in philosophy in, at the University of Idaho, and I came across his book, Orthodoxy, which I which I read, and it was a lifeline. It was a lifeline of common sense sanity in, uh, in a major that uh, was not, is not renowned for common sense sanity. Um, so I've read a lot of Chesterton since that time with great appreciation. I really enjoy his ability to put things right side up by, putting, by inverting them and looking at them upside down. He once said that a paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention. So Chesterton is uh, just a, a unique character in the history of letters, and I really, really enjoy him. I also enjoyed this book, The Sins of G.K. Chesterton, but I think that there, uh, there are a few problems with it. I think that anybody who knows anything about Chesterton's life knows that he was an odd uh, duck. <laughs> he was not that—he wasn't that practical a man. and. Uh, when I what I found out in this book, reading this book, is that he was a pretty he was kind of a chump and a patsy when it came to being manipulated by people that he loved. Uh, in this case, that basically I think the book could have been better called "The Sins of Hilaire Belloc and Cecil Chesterton." Cecil Chesterton was Chesterton's younger brother, and Hilaire Belloc was a, uh, a tornado in boots, kind of a a force of nature a strongly opinionated man, strong Roman Catholic, and just often wrong, never in doubt kind of guy. And uh, Hilar Belloc was a really bad influence on Chesterton, but Chesterton was a, a, a faithful friend to him. And Cecil Chesterton was a very dogmatic, opinionated younger brother without the winsomeness of his older brother, Gilbert. And basically, the, this book, The Sins of G.K. Chesterton, points out that Chesterton was maneuvered into some indefensible positions by the behavior of his brother and his friend, and was kind of uh, manipulated and put upon. And if anybody had told me before I read this book, do you think that Chesterton might have been the kind of person that other people might take advantage of, I would have, I would have been willing to put money on it. I would, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. He's the, he's that kind of person. And Chesterton was maneuvered into some places where he tried to defend the indefensible. But this is, this was all. It, it, it wasn't anything of his own initiative. It was how he got maneuvered into things that his, uh, into defending things. His brother would say, or his friend Hilaire. Belloc would say, and probably the center of it, the center of this, has to do with 
Cecil's anti-Semitism and Hilaire Belloc's anti-Semitism, and Chesterton sort of saying, no, we're, it's not anti-Semitic exactly, and you know, coming in after them to do cleanup, um, and not very successful cleanup. At the same time, I sometimes got the impression reading this book that that there is anti-Semitism is a lit stick of dynamite. That that charge is a lit stick of dynamite, and it's awfully hard to parse through. Some of the uh, some of the accusations may have been like uh, the accusations that are thrown around today, where anti-Semitism is disagreeing with the Jew. Uh, well, that's not anti-Semitism at all, and that's the kind of thing that Gilbert Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, would say. But looking at some of the stuff that Ingram's produces that Bellock would say and Cecil Chesterton would say. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. They had a problem. Mm-hmm.